Hi there. Um, this is Tanya Dadashova with uh, Almas Capital, and today I have uh, as a guest Drura Parish, founder of uh, Make Time, our portfolio company that merged with Xometry and recently went IPO on Nasdaq. Hi, Drura. How's it going? Good, thank you. So, congratulations on IPO. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was uh, the first company that you founded, right? Correct. Yeah. So, uh, what 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 is like for you the whole experience of uh, founding the company, starting this journey, and leading it all the way to the IPO, like the founder's dream? Oh, it was super easy. There were no problems whatsoever. Just like a glass road. Of course. <laughs> frozen over with water and the most beautiful ice skates that you can imagine. You do remember you're speaking with your investors, so we know that's not exactly that, the truth. That's right. So you, you busted me. Now, it was interesting. It was really hard. Yeah. Um, and like to go back. So this is the first time being a founder of a venture company, but I was a six-time entrepreneur. Okay. And yeah. so I started many different facets of business that all kind of pushed itself into founding the company of Make Time. And so, but that, the whole learning curve of becoming a venture-backed CEO versus being an entrepreneur of a small business located in Kentucky in the middle of nowhere was completely different. Yeah, coming from Kentucky to the Silicon Valley, pitching to investors must be interesting. It was great though. I had a G5 at my disposal. I could fly anytime I wanted to. No, it was really, it was metaphorically and physically one of the biggest leaps that you can imagine. Yeah, and I think we actually first heard about Make Time and met the company at SWAT conference. Yes, which is even more interesting, right? Because being a founder in Kentucky, um, how one gets invited out to the SWAT con conference at uh, the Museum of Computer History, I think is what it, what it, what it was. But um, I was sitting at my computer, some of the organizers knew some of the people I was affiliated with. They said, hey, it sounds like you've got a good idea, why don't you come out and pitch it? Lo and behold, I think, I know for a fact I was the only Kentuckian there. Um, and the only Kentuckian we ever met there, that, for sure. That's right, and probably ever will meet there, uh, if they'll ever have any more Kentuckians back. But, um, but it was a fantastic... So if you can imagine the opportunity of being from Kentucky and moving into a venture, the venture world, but then not jumping necessarily straight into the traditional like Silicon Valley world, right? It wasn't like I went straight to Sand Hill Road and like did all the, you know, the, the, the normal laps. Instead, I, my first jump off point was an Eastern European pitch competition. Yeah, but and that's because it had some Ukrainian that's right. team. And so, exactly. So right there, I think you see a true 21st century model for venture, which is here I am in, in Kentucky. I've started a company that's presumably in technology. There is no software developers within, I don't know, maybe six hours, six hour drive at that time. And I was fortunate enough to meet some people that had uh, connections to software developers in Ukraine. And so I had a, a team of about six at the time that were absolutely instrumental in getting us up and moving. Um, and it was, a, it was a fascinating journey because one, we didn't know what starting a technology company was like, and two, all the, the memes and the metaphors and the ways that you think you would do it, like just like in a Silicon Valley way, went straight to Ukraine and from the Ukraine to Silicon Valley and then back to Kentucky and then back out to Silicon Valley. So it and was- And then you landed at Almas Capital Office. That's right. Which is also like in between because uh, we both ways, we're on Silicon Valley, we're in Eastern Europe, mixture of cultures. So it was um, a fit. It was a total fit. And I think you guys 
thought I was 100% crazy when I first walked through the door. I, th I probably came off like Dr. Evil thinking I understood what everything should be and what the numbers should be and I didn't know anything. Uh, absolutely zero as a matter of fact. But fortunate enough to meet Donnell and then Jeff um, and they helped walk me through of course to understand the ropes as they say in a, in a, in a more official way. But that's not the um, complicated part to understand so it's just uh, uh, a required step. That's right. Yeah, but you had already the idea, you had already the fit, the market fit, mm -hmm. and uh, I think when you actually pitched at SWOT, the, that, that was uh, uh, at, at the moment you had already also a machine shop sign mm -hmm. and everything, so it wasn't just an idea. Right, it wasn't just an idea, but what's very interesting, I think important about the moving from being, you know, an owner of an entrepreneurial business, just small business, to venture CEO. So prior to, to starting the platform, I had a, a relatively large business doing exactly what I did manually. Yeah. Where, you know, so like there are these people that had machine shops and they weren't, you know, they're under, you know, capacitized, they weren't doing enough work. And then on the buy side, there are all these people that needed to make parts but didn't know where to go. And so I manually did that and I did so very successfully and made a lot of money. As I was growing it, a friend of mine who's in uh, private equity, he said, you know, this is a great idea. Why don't you just go into, you know, just go raise some venture capital and, and scale this thing. Put it on the internet, as they say. But right at about the time that I went to Svold, I moved things from the manual world, offloading my book into this new platform, and it went from high-flying revenue to zero. And so it was the, the biggest education in one day that I had during the whole process, which is, no matter how great the intentions are, no matter how good the product market fit is, if you're going to scale the platform, the technology has to scale and it has to meet the users in a very specific way. And, and so you can't just force behaviors into another forced behavior. And so right there began an extreme education in trying to understand not only product market fit, because I knew people you know, had underutilized machine capacity and then simultaneously people needed these parts, but if they didn't know how to scale it together, and if they couldn't come to the right mechanism, then it could never truly scale. And that's where the actual business model fit started. So it's not just market fit, it's understanding what business model these people actually are able to accept. And that's, that's why it's the marketplace, right? That's right. And I'd say our first product market fit, you know, there's always like an ed education within an education. Yeah. Our first trade show. You know, we decided this was going to be a hand-to-hand -hand combat. We couldn't, you know, no ad words, no whatever, these people, blah, 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 blah. So this is kind of like a funny story. No, it depends on who you are, but it's kind of funny. So we couldn't afford to, you know, like more than one vehicle to go to this trade show. So we put everything into a small U-Haul. And then I sat in the back of the truck. We drove there. It's this true Kentucky moment. We showed up at this Ohio uh, machine shop show. And I had this beautiful Apple store looking thing. And everybody was scared of it because they probably thought it was witchcraft because we were talking about technology. But I'd say our, true, our first true product market fit was when I realized the only way to get them to start talking about our platform was to give them free chicken and beer. So we gave them a bunch of free chicken and beer. And then what was very interesting in this, my previous book of business, who was reticent to get on the platform, was replaced by a newer technology adopting like cohort that was ready to adopt this thing. And the minute that started happening and starting to build around the currency of their, their newer expectations of what the future of machining should look like, that's when we started feeling things starting to scale a little bit. Yeah, but that's, that, that's a problem, not just finding the right market, but 
finding the first adopters that are actually ready, and that then it's uh, the question of educational curve. That's right, so and and they're never the ones you think they are. Yeah, and so and uh, you know, but they were they weren't the ones from your previous business, right? Because was it hard to convert them? The, they were. It was much harder to convert than it was to find, find new ones. The true ones. Yeah. The the use cases, they were completely unrelated and unrelatable to this yeah. new platform. And so, you know, post chicken and beer. So there's before chicken and beer and post chicken and beer. So after chicken and beer, um, this newer cohort, not only were they willing to jump in, but they were also willing to give the insights necessary to truly grow the business for the 21st century of machining. Where we messed up was thinking that like, the people that were doing offline business were ready to do online business. And you know, by that point, you learn, you, you get kicked around a little bit, but then you pick yourself up. And but that's a problem with all traditional industries, right? So, mm -hmm. industry for zero didn't start that fast as it was predicted. Mm -hmm. I think because of that, it's more a cultural thing, uh, expectations, the sales processes. That's yeah, ridiculous. it requires chicken and beer. It, it 100 percent requires chicken and beer. That's like the the unknown technology for the the future of manufacturing, and it's still the problem. Like you know, the, my favorite thing, like I just love this statistic, that so. And make time was a part of this that we have to reshore 20% here in the United States of our manufacturing business. And the reason why we have to do this is just like because of you know, chip shortage or whatever to maintain supply, like security, economics, whatever you want to talk about. But underneath this, in order to accommodate that 20%, so you, here's make time and zometry, or now let's say zometry, that's just like tour de force and like, you know, taking underutilized capacity, bringing it to the people for use. But then you still have the problem of technology like adoption on the machine shop floor. How do you tell a machine shop, hang on, stop, put a sensor on your machine? This may or may not work. It may or may not bring business to you. And so, you know, just in general where we are, and when I look back at like MegTime and, and Zometry and what it's become is that it's like one of the first like cracks, one of the, the first showing that like we're in an inflection point in manufacturing where business practices can sit on top of technology, right, and start to make massive change. So once you start getting people transactionally involved at the highest, the, the top, you know, most layer of the supply chain, like I need a part, this thing gets made, then the suppliers are like, I wish I could make more of these parts. And then they're like, oh, this is great. Now we need to put sensors on so we know truly how much capacity utilization we have to get them on. And so it's just, you look back and it's just like what you thought was this massive thing this $36 billion like unmet market of like underutilized machine capacity is just the tip of the iceberg of a $600 billion plus problem, right? Where the future of the world relies 100% on our ability to adopt and adapt to making, right? You know, for the climate, for health, for just like economic growth, new industries, all these things. But it really just started with like the smallest of the problems, which is like, I really wish I had more sales. I really yeah. wish I just had more stuff on my machines. And I really wish that I, as a startup, I had a trustworthy place to go consistently make the same parts. That's, that's actually a very good point that uh, for, for a supplier, so for the supply side, it's uh, just easy to get more orders. So that's why they might sign up to the platform, but it's uh, way harder to commit to something else like installing stuff or a different wallet ratio and everything. So if you take big, percentage of their volumes, they might become conscious. Thanks. And that's, by the way, also the question, uh, because you were not alone on the market when you started, there was at, at the same time, Xometry and mm -hmm. MakeTime started. So how did these dynamics happen? Did you see them much 
at the same uh, accounts? Was it different parts? So how, how the whole story of make time xometry competition? Because that, that, that they were basically just two companies on the market. Right. So you together you made the market. Yeah, uh, it goes back to chicken and beer. No, I'm just kidding. They, Absolutely. Um, no, I'm sure it does because, uh, again, they probably use different kind of chicken and beer, but... <laughs> but still the same flavors. Competition, Or yeah. the same outcomes. <laughs> so what's interesting about the beginning is Make Time took a very automated supplier-facing position. I grew up in manufacturing in a machine shop, and I understood the narrative of the machine shop very well. And... I took it that like if you have unlimited capacity, then you can make unlimited things. So the grocery store I chose to stock was the supply side. Zometry, they took the demand side. If you build enough demand, it's easy to get supply on board. And so, you know, fast track, you know, over about two years, you know, from 2012, 2014, we got thousands and thousands of suppliers. We were trickling work in. Zometry was making parts, making parts in fewer shops. Um, but we're showing a very impressive demand um, demand cycle and funnel building uh, practice. They were a little more manual in their practices, but, but at the same time building a very robust pricing algorithm. We were very automated in the supplier fulfillment, but not so sophisticated in the pricing. So this is just like one of those like age-old parables, like when you get a LinkedIn message, you pay attention. But Randy, the, the CEO and founder, co-founder of Zometry, reached out and he's like, man, this manufacturing is extremely hard. He's like, we should talk. And I was like, oh, hell yeah, we should talk because this is like this is a massive market. It's exhausting. So we met and I really feel like this is just like a fundamental case study in like the supply and demand of a successful marketplace. We had supply. They had demand. You put the two together. You take the deficits in each other's technology. And it, from the minute we joined, it just started to go up. I actually remember that the whole conversation before the companies merged, it was quite short. It happened over a couple of months, right? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that it there was, was extremely yeah. fast. Very fast, yeah. yeah. Very unlike what happens in BC world usually. That's right. And it was not only because we saw each other's deficits, um, but also we had the same mission, which is just like, if, if you boil everything down and distill it down to, I think it's most succinct form, it's just like, how do we increase the rate of innovation and invention in made things? No, it sounds perfect actually, but there, should have been some pitfalls. So what, what, what was the hardest part of this merge oh, the hard, for it's you? A, it's always like um, you've got cultural things, like you ran it this way, they ran it this way. Those things are not insurmountable, but they, they do feel like sunburns at first. You're just like, things feel impossible and they feel extremely bureaucratic when you're used to moving in one linear direction. But then on the other side of it, if you get through the, the pains, like what you are as a result is extremely, you know, much more attuned to solving the problem than ever before. You know, but there's also like, you know, technological like philosophies, right? Should it be microservices or should it be a big ball yeah. of wax? Should oh, we love this discussion yeah. about microservices. That's, this is a, at every company at some point, especially at marketplaces, we have it. Yeah. And, and so, and we had those debates by the minute. And, you know, just because when you're dealing with a behemoth of an aging industry, you, you don't throw a planet at it, right? You have to show, you have to throw comets and constellations in, in order to, to get the, the right gravitational pull. And so, um, but over time, right, those battles, like I said, they start to become the candid conversations that you need. And we were very fortunate, you know, Randy was a, a heck of a CEO. They had good managers over there. 
we had good managers on our side and we just had a team that was very bought into the, the mission like once I said it's just like we really did think that we were going to basically create you know a time machine if you wanted something it's right there you know it's just like you walk through a portal and you grab a brand new Tesla in like a quarter of a second and so when you have that kind of ambition and that dream it's easy to, to rally and then I think also culturally there was an opportunity that the company's founded in Maryland so it's not like it was like also not a, a traditional Silicon Valley story not uh, at all. they've got crab cakes we got chicken legs and so here we are in Kentucky there they are in Maryland and so the two then, then the only question is which works better on manufacturers Oh, that's good. Kentucky. Okay. I mean, Kentucky yeah. is Kentucky second in the nation. Okay. Yeah. Kentucky is definitely, come on, we know our stuff. If you yeah, that's why, that's why you're head of supply. So you, yeah. you, you became head of supply, yeah. That's right. When so the, the companies merged. Because yeah. you know. And, and so in, in Kentucky, you know, we've got the benefit of being second in aerospace and automotive production. And just as you were talking about, you know, after the merger and I was the, the president of Zometry Supplies, part of the mission was how do you lower the cost of production for the supply side so that they can compete even you know, at a greater clip, not only on our platform, but at large. So the whole thing is just like, it's platform dynamics. You, you start by a supply and demand meeting, then you start going vertically on each side. So on the supply side, how do you make it cheaper? How do you give them the tools to succeed? So that's, you know, Zometry has grown a portfolio of like financial tools, suites, you know, or a suite of applications to help people, you know, manage their business, et cetera, uh, you know, more profitably by offsetting, you know, whatever, invoice costs that they might have, you know, in accounts payable, et cetera. But the whole point is, is that through this whole process, and back to your question, you know, what, what were the pains? In the beginning, all these things are painful. Yeah. And, you know, and it's like... New, they're new. They're uh, unknown. Yeah, they're new, they're unknown. But then we all started a very painful process in the beginning to, to try and solve one of the hardest problems, like, in the world, which is just like... People don't have enough of anything on either side in an aging, potentially dying industry. And so how do you position that for a digital transformation? Okay, so what would you do different if you could? So what's your main learning for your next companies? I'm sure Ooh. there would be many. Yeah, there's tons. Um, the first one is just Kentucky-centric, that you, you can't replace the learning curve that you go through. I spent way too much time trying to understand the nuances of what this world is, like the venture world. And then there's like an interesting thing that happens where the, the venture capitalist becomes as much of a customer if you let it happen as your customer. So going back in time, I knew that capital was important to the business because it's a big proposition. But I think I got a little overwhelmed and obsessed with trying to understand what it was going to take to keep the fuel going in. When the answer is pretty simple, you just keep driving sales. Yeah, if you have a growing business, venture capitals will always come. You, exactly. And so, so I took my eye off a little bit and just trying to understand that. And so going back in time, it's, just, it's an easy fix. You just, you oversell, you just keep selling, you just keep pushing, keep pushing. The second thing I would say is, which is also Kentucky centric, or I just say like the rest of the world centric, which is start a business, then you get software to figure out the business which is wrong. Software, like the technology, tech business needs to be embedded with technology. It needs to be like one synchronous thought. So if I went back, it's not about a dualistic nature of business, like a service model, but it's like, how do you build something truly elegant and beautiful from the beginning? So if, uh, if I went back, it's all in the unit economic, it's all in about supply and demand distribution across a platform, 
And how do you make that technological solution? And the answer was just an, a pricing engine. And I was just trying to solve everything else. So there's that. And then another thing, which I was you know, extremely fortunate for having some of the best like, people you could ever imagine working with, but you always need better. And so like, I cannot stress that like, if you know, a CEO or somebody that was in my position, if I ever found myself trying to answer my own question, then that's a sign that the company is not doing what the company needs to do. Yeah. And so I would go back and just like hop on a plane, go to wherever I need to go and get the absolute best person, whether or not if you like the person or not, because that's really not a point. Like it's just the company needs to do what the company needs to do. That's probably also some things that we should have done. So our learnings that we see job is mostly a charge job. Mm-hmm. So that what we have to, to actually help entrepreneurs more in this front, seeing that they need high quality people, C-level mm-hmm. especially, to, that can help them and yeah, yeah and, and are better in certain, in certain directions, they are better than the founder, so to just uh, complement what's his best at. A hundred percent. And uh, it's also critically important, like the middle layer too. Like not just to see, but it's just like over time you find that the most persistent engine in a business is like you know this like core managerial but that's for 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 c-level people to hire so that's for right. vc it's to hire right c-level people who will hire the right rest you of the team. yeah right. absolutely yes. so thank you so much it was a very interesting journey and uh, thank you for sharing it well thanks for having me